0: Your Space Coast vacation is preparing for liftoff. Start counting down now. Ten, nine, eight, seven. It's time for a beach vacay that feels like heaven. Six, five, four. Come explore Melbourne and the beaches. Three, two, one. It's time for some rocket-filled fun. Count down to your best beach vacation ever on Florida's Space Coast. Launch your planning now at VisitSpaceCoast.com. Episode 151 of The Bowery Boys, The Limelight, from church to club to mall. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there.
2: Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With an unusual subject, I would say. You know, after that momentous 150 episode on the consolidation of New York City, we thought that we would go with something kind of quirky and unexpected for the follow-up.
0: And what's especially interesting, or perhaps odd, about the subject that we're tackling today is that the limelight is really like two different stories. In one, you have the story of the Church of the Holy Communion, and then the the story of the limelight, the club, from the 80s and 90s. Now, many of you may not have ever heard of this place.
2: This is really a story of
0: architectural
2: flexibility, if you will, how spaces get creatively used in New York based on the particular needs of the day.
0: Others might, of course, call it architectural flexibility sacrilege because <laughs> certainly a, a big nightclub that would ultimately go down in a big dust up of drugs would of course start out as a respected church uh, that was groundbreaking in many ways not only was it respectable
2: one of New York's leading hospitals got its start here it actually has a connection to our founding fathers not to mention one of the greatest architects of the day
0: and then on a personal note this is a place That Greg and I both spent quite a bit of time in In the mid-90s when it was a disco We were living the history So we'll be able to add that insight Once we
2: get to the very end of the story And I
0: have a feeling, Greg, that many of our listeners Were also living that that story The story with us in the 90s and, And maybe before Because it opened as a nightclub in 1983 The old and the new The saints, the
2: sinners The respectable and the retail This is the story of the limelight the church the club and the marketplace Spending some time in contemporary days, but we begin our show in the 1840s here, Tom. Why don't you set us up, situate us uh, where we're at, what the city is like at that time.
0: Right and and the fact that what we're talking about here even though this episode is called the limelight we're talking about the church of the holy communion and sits today at the northeast corner of 6th Avenue and 20th Street the church was constructed in 18 between 1844 and 1846 mm-hmm. in the gothic revival style and designed by renowned church architect Richard Upjohn. Now, before we get into all of that, the construction and the architect Mm -hmm. and whatnot, let's... And our usual bit. And the usual bit. Let's just imagine this intersection of 6th Avenue and 20th Street in the 1840s.
2: Because it would have been an intersection. The streets would have been demarcated because
0: of the commissioner's Commissioner's Plan. plan of 1811.
2: But that doesn't necessarily mean that a lot were on these blocks, necessarily.
0: No, in fact, there were some fields. There were some fancy residences that had sprouted up around, say, Union Square and Gramercy. So, mm-hmm. so people were creeping up from south of Canal Street up around Washington Square Park and then further up around 14th Street. But there wasn't much happening all the way up on 20th Street. <laughs> According to an, an article that I read from the New York Times published in 1929 when the church was constructed in the 1840s the nearest house was at 7th Avenue and 24th Street. Oh. So over a block and, uh, and up four. So I don't really know if that's true because I heard <laughs> because I read other accounts of you know more stately homes lining 6th Avenue. So it's mm-hmm. a little bit difficult to assess exactly what was going on but let's let's say that it wasn't densely populated Now, the story of the church gets underway with the introduction of William Muhlenberg, who was the church's founder and very much involved in its design and its construction. Muhlenberg was born in Philadelphia. He was the son of one of the founders of the American Lutheran Church, a very respected American family. And do you know who his grandfather was? Another Muhlenberg? Uh,
2: Indeed, a Frederick Muhlenberg, America's very first Speaker of the House. Really? Um, He served as a representative of Pennsylvania, but actually in 1774... Grandpa Muhlenberg actually had a church in New York, which they called the Old Swamp Church, which was further down in Manhattan. So there was precedent, even in his own family, of starting congregations here in Manhattan. So clearly the
0: Muhlenberg name was a very respected name in politics and religion. Right. Our Muhlenberg, today's Muhlenberg. Right, William. William would go on to found and direct the St. Paul's College in Flushing, Long Island from 1828 until the 1840s. And he put forth a new philosophy of education that really centered around religion and character building. Holistic education. Not the education of King's College, Columbia. This wasn't the the literary first education. This was Mm -hmm. about building the character of the boys. Now, William Muhlenberg had a sister, Anna, who was married to a man named John Rogers. He, he was also a big proponent of this philosophy and of the socially progressive ideals uh, that Muhlenberg espoused. When Rogers died, his widow... Muhlenberg's sister, put up the money that was needed to construct a church in her late husband's honor. That, of course, would become the Church of the Holy Communion. So they went around looking for the land, and they bought the land on 6th Avenue and 20th Street, and hired Richard Upjohn, the renowned English-born architect, to design the church. Now, Upjohn is no stranger to the Bowery Boys podcast. Oh, no. And
2: no stranger to any church, in in New York, it seems at this time,
0: and or churches across the country built about that time because so many of them copied Upjohn's designs, the the Gothic Revival style that he was that he was pushing at this time. He
2: literally wrote the book on how to build these small churches. He actually did write a book in the eighteen fifties of the, his basic styles that then you know was distributed throughout America. And so there's hundreds of churches in the sort of Upjohnish
0: style. Upjohnish, I love that. Well, Upjohn moved to New York in 1839, and soon got to work on small projects down at Trinity Church. And it was while he was working on Trinity and actually on redesigning uh, what would become the new Trinity Church mm-hmm. that we talked about in another podcast. It was at the same time that he was hired to work on plans for the Church of the Holy Communion and the new trinity church that upjohn was designing would be completed in 1846 the same year as the church of the holy communion so he
2: was the leading name in church design in america and it's clear because there's so much evidence of his influence in the city today with all of these major churches you know below 23rd street
0: right The cornerstone was laid here on July 25th, 1844, and the construction would continue wrapping up and consecrated on December 13th, 1846. When you look at this church today, and we're... Fortunate to still have the church and, and so many of his churches still with us, the church is constructed of brownstone blocks, which seem to be sort of laid at random patterns. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this, there's a kind of quaint uh, randomness about the lines of the blocks. That well, and it's it's obviously very planned out, but it's intended to give. Uh, the impression of it being an old, even medieval structure, you know, that has weathered uh, weathered the centuries. It, it looks like an old English countryside church, and this is an original idea, and it is this revival style that made the church such an important feat of, of architecture, made it so widely copied, and would lead to its designation as a national
2: landmark. It seemed to add some importance and gravity to the building itself, because it seemed to be much older than it actually was. Right.
0: Did you know, Greg, that it's notable for being the first asymmetrical Gothic revival edifice in the United States?
2: <laughs> now, I... Read that in a book, and I was like, Well, so what's so, so what? But then, actually, the more I thought about it, churches of this time, older churches. Mm -hmm. They are all symmetrical. You you could almost fold them in half. Right. And so that is what what makes this one
0: so distinctive. And what do you see when you look at uh, the Church of the Holy Communion? I keep wanting to say, when you look at the (laughs) limelight, when you look at the church, there's a tower on the right, there's a door in the center. The chapel itself seems symmetrical, Mm -hmm. but it it is thrown off by this bell tower to the side.
2: But it works because it is on a street corner like Mm -hmm. that.
0: And even the tower, check out the tower, check out the top, the the medieval top of that tower, which is kind of jagged. You'd be excused for thinking that it was constructed by some, say, 14th century king. (laughs) He would continue to construct, he would add a parish house and a rectory to the east of it on 20th Street in 1850, and then a sister's house to the north of it in 1853.
2: Oh yeah, I will get to those sisters here in a second.
0: And aside from the architectural firsts uh, that we've mentioned, it was also notable for being the first in other respects. It was the first church in New York City not to charge parishioners for their own pews. An incredible
2: notion to think that up until this time, right. most of these prominent churches, you had
0: to pay for a place to sit. A reserve reserved seating. It was one of the first in the city to hold weekly communion. There was a real strong sense of social progressive ideas here happening at... at 6th Avenue and 20th Street. And all based
2: on Muhlenberg's vision here for this church, which was quite different than other churches of the day.
0: And it attracted some really big names of the day. The the parishioners included such family names as the Astors, the Goulds, and the Vanderbilts. Even as a place
2: where they didn't pay for these pews, I guess it became fashionable for these other reasons.
0: Well, and as the area became more fashionable, this was perhaps their neighborhood church. A man who was the rector for about 50 years, I don't know if you're going to get into him, Dr. Henry Mottitz? Mm, no. Well, he recalled, he spent his whole life going to the church as a child and then then becoming the rector for about 50 years. He recalled a story when he was a child sitting in a pew in the very back, church was full and there was a commotion toward the front of the church. It seemed that a an African-American woman who was... "...sitting in one of the pews toward the very front, and who had brought along her blind son, had stood up for communion and had lost her balance and fallen." And to her side raced three individuals from the church to help her up—a man, a woman, and a child. It was, in fact, turned out to be John Jacob Astor, his wife, and their son William Waldorf Astor. Wow! So, so you see, even through this anecdote, which I read in that same <laughs> Times article, I it, think it's true. <laughs> it sounds very glowing of the Astors, of course, and and it paints a it paints a picture of this church as being a place of social integration, way ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of being
2: ahead of its time, let me now bring us to the nunnery. Now, four years after the completion of the church, Muhlenberg added the sister's house, which is the building to the north of the main structure.
0: Between it and the
2: diner. (laughs) Yes. It would basically be where you would enter later during the 1990s. This is where you would enter the, the club. I always take a little pause. There's always a mild shock when I hear about, you know, a convent Mm. in New York. But in fact, there were many, especially in 19th century New York City. Still some today. Exactly. In 1850, the Sisters House was built. This was New York's very first convent to Anglican nuns, the sisterhood of the Holy Communion. What's interesting about how he he formed this, that given the widespread anti-Catholic fervor, of the Mm -hmm. day, Muhlenberg actually went out of his way to publish something that spelled out the ways that his sisterhood would not be like the ones that answered in Rome, not like the Catholic ones. Quote, Let this be understood, and any fears or jealousy of women power in the church, which in fact would be a priestly power, will have no place Mm -hmm. The dread of convents, abbesses, lady superiors, and everything of that sort will vanish. So essentially, he kind of wrote off people's fears of this while setting up something that was sort of similar in structure –
0: So these nuns are not to be feared. Well, wait, can we call them nuns?
2: Most of the contemporary literature of the day, I think we would refer to them generally today as nuns, and this as a convent, but in fact, most of the literature that I read just refers to them as sisters. Sisters. So I think it's, we'll use the word sister as sisterhood, because I feel like that's more appropriate. And who were these first sisters? Well, the very first, the leading sister, was this fascinating woman named Anne Ayers, a British woman who had come to America in 1836 specifically to tutor the children of rich families. Mm -hmm.
0: Of which there were many. Of which there were many
2: at this time. And at one point, she tutored the niece of Muhlenberg, became a close friend of his, and later, as I'll explained, a biographer of Muhlenberg. In 1845, he consecrated her as the very first sister of the Holy Communion. So it was before the sister's house was built. So she had a say in the construction as well and how this was going to be organized. She gathered several women who lived in this house uh, under a sort of a loose confederacy of sisters. It was a little bit looser. They had contracts, three years contracts. This wasn't a lifelong service, but they were not primitive. To marry, and they had to adhere to every word of Miss Ayers and call her the first sister. Mm-hmm. So just keep that in mind. Just an incredible setup here on 20th Street and Sixth Avenue. And but one thing that Anne was particularly interested in is helping him with another dream of his, which is the development of a church hospital. You know, this now the 1850s, a decade of huge population growth, of course. At this time, there were only a few early proper hospitals, uh, including the New York Hospital, which is today's New York
0: Presbyterian, was opened at this time, as was, of course, Bellevue Hospital. And you said 1850s, so, of course, the city is really moving on up around the church right now, so Mm -hmm. we're... So this far-flung location is suddenly in the middle of all the action. So in 1853, Anne and William, they rented a building and constructed a small
2: infirmary here. In 1858, if you, t- if you take his biography at its word, they were walking around and he f- fell in love with the corner of 5th Avenue and 54th Street. And it was there that they built the very first St. Luke's Hospital. A very beautiful, handsome structure, actually, the very first hospital was. And it also had a Gothic revival mm-hmm. style to it. and may have even reflected in color the, the Church of the Holy Communion downtown. Today, that is the University Club building, which is across the street from the Gap. Now, later, by the way, in 1896, it would move up to its present location at 114th Street, which is right next to the Church of St. John the Divine.
0: So you mentioned uh, a boys' school. And so, mm-hmm. so we have students, we have boys attending school here at the church, or in one of the yes. buildings uh-huh. adjacent to it. right.
2: In fact, not only were there a lot of children here who uh, were at, at, at receiving instruction, they also formed what is believed to be New York's very first boys' choir, plucked from the finest, most moral boys that you know were at the church. According to Anne's own writing, quote, Irreligious boys, no matter what their other qualifications, could not be in the chapel choir. And wrongdoing, according to its degree, was followed by suspension from the choir. So you may be getting a sense that Anne might be a little bit of a... She cracked a whip. um, We would say she was a very sassy sister,
0: perhaps. Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose that beats a twisted sister.
2: Others might call her a little twisted. Another sister at the church actually wrote that she was, quote, erratic and autocratic. She was seen as being rather domineering. In 1863, in fact, a group of sisters split with the church. Like, I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure how many were there at this time, but at least a good number left the church and formed another faction. Really? And then, you know, th- part of another church. Part of another church. Over the years, many sisters would leave, and eventually the sisterhood of the Holy Communion would completely dissolve. In 1876, Anne became the sister superintendent of St. Luke's, say that five times fast, and handled all the affairs for Muhlenberg. They were quite close at this time. Now, in the following year, 1877, he died, and she put pen to paper and wrote a glowing biography. Tom, I was up all night reading this. It was incredible. It said as much about her as it did about him.
0: And where, um, and where can we get this? Well, you,
2: it's, uh, it's in the public domain. You can actually go to Google Books and just type Anne Ayers and Muhlenberg, and po- it'll pop up. It's fascinating. After she wrote it, she burned all of his papers and his diaries and then promptly destroyed her own papers.
0: Leaving only this book Living only behind.
2: Uh, Leaving only this book. So it just to me, that lets my mind wander that I'm imagining there's a hidden story, perhaps even a hidden romance of sorts between Mm. these two individuals. That's just my own speculation. Right. But since she burned all the papers, I can't really say that it's not true. (laughs) And we turn to speculative history. (laughs) No, 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 sorry. But they are buried together in Kings Park, New York, in the North Shore of Long Island. So they are eternally together.
0: So, Muhlenberg died in 1877, Mm -hmm. in the 70s, and by this point, the neighborhood had continued to change, and in fact, Sixth Avenue, by this point, was lined with department stores. This was the era, the 1880s, 1890s, 1900, of the, the Ladies' Mile, where shoppers were coming to Sixth Avenue in droves. And so many of these buildings are still with us today. In fact, around the church, you can see right across the street and the couple blocks south of the street, you see the buildings that today house TJ Maxx, Bed Bath & Beyond, the Container Store. My favorite
2: of all the buildings um, up and down Sixth Avenue is uh, the the Bed Bath & Beyond store. But in fact, when it was originally opened, it was the Siegel Cooper department store. It was the largest store in the world. And it was just two blocks from the Church of the Holy
0: Communion. So all of a sudden, it was... There were no fields, open fields anymore. Right. Or no elite country residences. These were gone. They had moved over to Fifth Avenue and were moving uptown. This was the middle-class shopping zone, home to giant department stores and one very well-positioned church. (laughs) But— I say, well, position, but what did it really mean for the congregation, you know, when you had the Astors and the Vanderbilts and so forth before, and they had moved away, so too had so many parishioners because this simply wasn't really a residential zone anymore. By the time of World War I, many of these department stores themselves had closed or moved up to, mm-hmm. say, Herald Square or over to Fifth Avenue, and replacing these were... Were warehouses, were factories. Wait, I think you're in this description here, you're forgetting kind of
2: one kind of big darkening presence here. <laughs> I believe the elevated railroad would be going up Sixth Avenue.
0: Right, which would be constructed in the 1880s and mm-hmm. um, which we have. An entire podcast dedicated to the Elevateds. <laughs> and, and even the,
2: specifically our description of the Sixth Avenue, because right. it was supposed to be even far more grandiose than
0: it ended up being. So imagine our little church here, under the shadow... Of this elevated railroad. Imagine walking, uh, approaching the front doors of the church and having a train rattle by, (laughs) blowing smoke, soot coming down, ashes coming down from way up on high, going and sitting through a service and feeling the rumble, rumble, rumble of a train go by. And those
2: beautiful stained glass windows being clogged with dirt and smoke and everything.
0: The story at this point, I'd say, goes... For a rather gritty phase, mm-hmm. which unsurprisingly results in the, the the church facing some difficult finances. And Greg, that's just where I'm going to leave you here, sort of at the end of the 20s and going into the 30s, mm-hmm. uh, with the neighborhood falling out of favor and a giant question mark hanging over the Church of the Holy Comm- On April 19th, 1995,
2: a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC. Hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC.
0: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham,
2: Ooh,
0: yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products
2: as directed union yeah there was a there would be an existential crisis that would happen now in 1946 the church would celebrate its 100th anniversary so you know it was quite old in new york by that time just two decades later it would be declared a new york city landmark this was just a year after the landmark preservation commission was even created in the first place and and which year was this that was 1966 is okay. when he got the landmark distinction. You know, the Penn Station had, right yeah. up the street had just, had just been knocked had down. Just been knocked down. So this was one of the buildings that was saved by the city because of that sacrifice. Through it all, Holy Communion, still a congregation, still people who go here regularly. This is their neighborhood church, or this is just something where their family's gone, but it's the congregation's greatly dwindling because, of course, the neighborhood is dwindling in prominence. Eventually, the congregation here would merge with two other congregations at churches that were actually older than the Church of the Holy Communion. So today, all three of those congregations are known, and it's a
0: still active congregation, the congregation of Calvary St. George's Parish. And that's Calvary Church over on Park Avenue and 21st Street, uh-huh. which sort of resembles the Church it of the does Holy does a Union, little bit, right. And St. George, which was over at Stuyvesant
2: Square. Yes. Now, here's the problem, is that they're combining these congregations. They don't need all of those churches. If you're going to get rid of one, you're going to get rid of the newest one. So believe it or not, even though this church is like hundred and you know over 130 years old by this time, they decide, they vote, and then decide to sell off the Church of Holy Communion. It should be noted, by the way, just in their defense, that hundreds of New York churches were facing a very similar crisis. In 1979, the New York Times declared that as many as half of New York's 2000 and 450 churches and synagogues were faced with possible closure due to changes in their neighborhoods. That's a huge shift of uh, of buildings, you know,
0: having to become other types of things. And so the Episcopal Church is looking to sell off this this particular church and it's designated a landmark, so whoever buys it has to continue supporting the structure. Right. It's
2: difficult because, of course, many other churches were just
0: simply demolished during this
2: period because— They didn't have a designation. Yeah. I mean, another thing that was going on is the, the kinds of religions that were more becoming popular at this time, a lot of more Baptist communities were moving in, and they didn't move into these types of buildings. They, had, they either built their own or they had other kinds of simpler buildings. That, simpler very much so. The Church of the Holy Communion was then deconsecrated. Um, there's actually a ritual that the church goes through to decommission a building um, from religious use. Now, the building was sold to a literary commune for a very short time called the Lindisfarne Association. A half dozen artists and writers actually lived here. I, I tried to get some sort of clarification of what their what their thing it was. It fabulous. Yeah, a uh, quote, an alternative way for the humanities to develop in a scientific and technical civilization—they, an association of scientists, artists, scholars, and contemplatives devoted to the study and realization of a new planetary culture.
0: It's mm-hmm. so a very new agey, but yeah. but still academic but, and spiritual. They ended up
2: moving away and couldn't afford this building anymore, so the building was sold again for a half million dollars to. A place called the Odyssey House. Um, no, Which that, also sounds like a new age. <laughs> and sounds hum. like and sounds like a dance club. <laughs> but in fact, the Odyssey was a drug rehabilitation center. Um, so it's where you go after the drug. Yeah, soon, <laughs> where you go after the dance. Yet another soon-to-be-considered ironic tenant of the, of the Church of the Holy Communion. The Odyssey Rehabilitation Center was here for only a couple more years and then they ended up selling it in 1982. So for a very short period of time, the halls of the Holy Communion remained empty.
0: And we should add that in 1980, the building was was also added to the National Register of Historic Places. So there was not just this local landmark status granted to it, but a national one as well. Just
2: underscoring its importance to American religious history and to architectural history.
0: And so we find ourselves here, Greg, at the end of this story of a church and also wondering how this place that we've just described, this important church, mm-hmm. became this infamous nightclub. Hedonistic club. We're about to get a little whiplash
2: here as the story takes a very different tenor or different trouble, if you will.
0: Or trouble. <laughs> it gets in a lot of trouble. <laughs> So so, bear with us, because it's also a story that I think that you know, some listeners will find quite sacrilegious and, and maybe quite bothered by. It's tasteful, yeah. And that was also, I would say, a sentiment that was prevalent at the time as mm-hmm. well. People were, were shocked by what was about to happen to this structure, where in 1983, the building was sold— for $1.7 million to the nightclub owner, Peter Gation, who opened the limelight in it in 1983. And it would remain, this building would remain a nightclub through 2007, with a few closures by the police, of course. <laughs>
2: Several, yes.
0: So who is this Peter Gation, and how did he wind up in our story?
2: He's an entrepreneur from Canada, from Ontario. I should add, he had a very distinctive look about him, mm. for he wore an eye patch. And uh, do you
0: know why he wore that eye It was uh, something in his youth. It was a hockey. It was a hockey accident. Mm -hmm. And he received a $13,000 settlement for this hockey accident with which he opened up a jeans store. Uh, (laughs) And and he was an uh, empresario. He was he was an entrepreneur. He opened up this jeans store and then that led him into opening up his first club in Ontario. And then from there, he headed down to Florida And opened up his first Limelight. Right. So the Limelight was actually a franchise
2: that went from Miami to then Atlanta. Then, of course, you know, the ultimate prize would be New York. Uh, Around this time, big clubs were thriving in New York. His Uh,
0: Miami club was in 76 mm -hmm. and Atlanta shortly thereafter. I think he wanted to open up a club in New York right away, but he had to pay his dues. First in these other markets mm-hmm. and, and he was really successful especially with that with that Atlanta club drawing in big names. And to open a club in New York in 1983 that's very exciting
2: I mean that's like the year of you know Madonna the dawn of the music video. The club opened in 1983. Right and, November 9th 1983. And
0: what was the reaction?
2: The New York Times wrote an article of, of the opening with with you know shocking little details of a confessional booth was being used as uh, by the ticket taker. They dropped dropped plans to use the stained glass window of Jesus in a laser show. All these yeah all these things, of course, to sort of, you know, incite reaction, which they certainly got. In fact, an Episcopal bishop wrote in, quote, The coarsest pornography has never made me as upset as this sick pathological use of symbols sacred to millions of New Yorkers. And I think that that was probably exactly the point that he was going for. Well, he right? specifically was looking for something of sort of an older
0: architectural value and pro- probably specifically a church. And he was a provocateur here, obviously looking to rattle people and make a splash in the press.
2: Now, in the early days, even I believe in that first month, uh, Andy Warhol... Um, would have hosted a party here, as did Yoko Ono. I believe in the first week. We're still in the glow of the Studio 54 years, where you know these are, these are places, destinations for dozens of celebrities to hang
0: out and see and be seen. And on top of it, it was an incredibly lucrative business for Peter Gation. Obviously, these celebrities coming in for free and people on the guest list, Mm -hmm. but then you had thousands of people every day paying $15 a head to get in and $5 for a drink, even if it was a (laughs) Coca-Cola. Peter Gation introduced the concept of the theme night, to the club world in New York City. And, and sometimes, you know, it wouldn't just be one theme or one party happening, but often there were multiple themes and multiple parties happening in different parts of the church and different parts of the club on the same night. No, Right, and maybe com- maybe a
2: complex theme night he brought in, but I'm sure that other clubs and even places touched by Andy Warhol had little theme nights as well. So I'm not sure if he started it, but it is true that they, because it had so many different rooms, it wasn't so big that multiple things and multiple events with different types of people could be
0: happening at once. There were even multiple doors in in use. So the, the main entrance, which was through the sister's house in the front there, mm-hmm. so to the left of today's main entrance... That was the sort of normal entry. There was another entry for the the boys towards the back mm-hmm. on 20th Street. And I read about another entrance too, but I can't remember where that would it have been in the courtyard. Maybe they were just lowered down from a helicopter somewhere through a skylight. I wouldn't
2: have been surprised. Through the rosary. Now, the late 80s the club scene the club world in fact of all through New York was gripped by a certain fear because of course now we had the AIDS epidemic spreading throughout the, the city people not really understanding what mm. that disease was so because of it a lot of uh, nightclubs at this period shut down or were definitely affected in terms of in, in terms of profits because people just were afraid to go out. But by the early 90s, things were re-energized again, and especially here at the Lime White for a few reasons, actually. One of them being that the growing fortunes of the Chelsea neighborhood by the early 90s were improving. People were moving here and, uh, and spending a lot of money for nice apartments. There were lots of different bars and restaurants opening here.
0: That certainly helped. And when you say people are moving here, it was, it was really gay residents who were moving in. We And right. also opening up restaurants, bars, and coffee shops, like the late, great Big Cup. Music was changing. There were new styles of music, like
2: techno and rave music by the early 90s, that fit very comfortably in these very large rooms with gigantic light shows. But then I think the thing that really energized the scene here at the limelight was the introduction of the club kid. Essentially, teenagers and young adults, not necessarily from like wealthy families or whatever, but deciding to uh, dress
0: unusually flamboyantly. Often making their own costumes, omnisexual. And, and they had their own followings, they had their own sort of celebrities, their own photographers. I mean,
2: essentially fodder for, of course, 1990s talk shows.
0: I mean, if you wanted cheap ratings, you just threw in some club kids. But they were also a great way for club promoters to pack the house. So you had a club owner, say Peter Gation, hiring promoters mm-hmm. who would then turned to his club kids and other promoters to draw in the crowds through the use of different party nights happening on a certain night at the club.
2: It was also the idea of creating their own celebrities, if you will, because these club kids then became sort of local celebrities. So on nights where you didn't have like Jennifer Lopez stopping at your club. You didn't need to because you had all these different club kids and drag queens of a certain renown in this
0: scene. Can we just pull back for one second? Because I'm sure that there are still some listeners who didn't know that they were getting themselves into this. <laughs> so, we really because taken- we were just talking about the sisterhood um, and, and Upjohn. So let's just pull back. How does it work? Literally, how does a club fit into this church, what would it have looked like? When you walked in, they removed the pews, right. the main sanctuary. Right. So
2: the main room, where, of course, the the main services would have been, I mean, no more pews, of course, but there still would have been a stage, and there still would have been those like dramatic stained glass windows. So, so the been, altar right. had been
0: replaced with a stage mm-hmm. at the end, and, and the stained glass windows were still in place. An upper section would have been enhanced, created, I think, by uh, Right. He put in the
2: balconies. So put in the balconies. Up there would have put in the DJ system and everything, but also mm-hmm. little private rooms would have been in there as well. Additionally, other rooms that had been in the church already were then used for smaller parties, different parties, notably the chapel, then became its own room. Like People sometimes would just go to the chapel and forgo the other room entirely. I mean, the chapel versus the main sanctuary room, the sort of the chapel on the side. So
0: you had different DJs in different parts, different rooms of the church. And of course, from the ceiling of the main sanctuary were we're hanging giant uh, boxes cages, er, cages with dancers inside them and dancers all over on boxes on the main dance floor twirling disco balls and laser lights In my memory, there were just all of these different rooms and staircases connecting things. You could very easily get lost and find yourself in a room with a great song blasting that was different from the the music that you heard in a previous room. Bubbles in the air or fog or smoke, people pressed in, maybe some drag queens, maybe some club kids on platform shoes. And keep in mind that, you know, in some rooms you still
2: had like, crypts in the wall, you know, where people had been buried. I'm not sure if their bodies were still there. That would be very macabre. Upstairs you had a room that was specifically designed by the artist H.R. Geiger, famous for his designs of the Alien franchise, of the movies, those creatures. And so this room had sort of a sci-fi, gothic feel to it. And so it felt very labyrinth. Right. the whole Labyrinthine. Very labyrinthine, where you would go from one room to the next and have a different Feel at one point, I believe the bathrooms had gigantic fish aquariums.
0: It was anything but boring because if you were bored with a specific room, you just moved into another one. Oh, I think we forgot to mention, of course, that the cocktails.
2: The Well, the cocktails. But then a lot of people here weren't drinking. It was considered maybe a drug haven.
0: This brings us to the subject that we have never encountered before on The Bowery Boys, (laughs) of ecstasy. This was a club drug that was extraordinarily popular. There were all these new synthetic designer drugs that were coming through here that fit this particular scene. And because this is also the era of the new mayor, Rudolph Giuliani, who had embarked on an A major campaign to crack down on crime, one petty criminal at a time, Mm -hmm. called his Broken Windows. He turned his attention at a certain point here in the 90s to drug dealers and to the places where people were buying and selling drugs, including the city's nightlife.
2: So Gashin soon entered his sights here as a place where the law was being flaunted and, you know, with a lot of, like, young people participating in it.
0: Which is kind of incredible, again, to think that the limelight at this point has been open since 1983. Mm Mm-hmm. It doesn't really run into to big problems, major problems, with the law until 1996. Right.
2: Now, by this time, uh, Gayshin had a host of different clubs throughout the city, including the Palladium on 14th Street is a tunnel and a short-lived club in Midtown called Club USA. But the limelight, in particular, seemed to represent everything that was sort of corrupt.
0: It was also perhaps the most central and it was the only one of these that was in a church. Sure. <laughs> that, again, I think informs all these decisions
2: because it does make it a larger target, I think.
0: And while the police were investigating Peter Gation on tax evasion and looking for for something to bust him, along comes this story of a club kid named Michael Alleg, who on March 9th, 1996, along with his friend Robert Freeze Riggs, Murdered and dismembered Angel Melendez, who was a drug dealer. It's a really gruesome story. It's been the subject of a film, but it's actually,
2: it really shows how this world is sort of, it's running amok and things are happening that
0: are just surreal, you could say it's an allegory. <laughs> but but initially, the police were not that interested in the story because they were more focused on getting gation on tax evasion. However, it was the, the Village Voice columnist Michael Musto who, in his column, started writing about the disappearance and the rumors of the disappearance hmm. of this club kid. And that was in April of 1996. Well, people started looking into this, and when Angel Melendez's torso washed up on the shores of Staten Island, Michael Alec knew he had a problem, and he was soon after uh, locked up in prison, where he remains today. But it, but it really signifies, I think, the end of an era. This is 1996. Mm-hmm. The the club doesn't close immediately it stays open sure. for a while it does open
2: and close sporadically throughout the night the late 90s right, it's here. kind
0: of a blur looking back remembering you know you never really knew if the limelight was was still open or if it was closed all of a sudden or- it would be open one day and yeah and peter gation would be arrested for tax evasion in 1999 and the limelight would be shuttered in 2001 Now, others
2: kept wanting to bring the beat back here to- to turn the beat around. To the church here. In 2003, new owners attempted to reopen it under a completely different name, Avalon, a more King Arthur medieval type name, which may have suited some of the architectural features of the building. But this is 2003. The world is- changing. It costs more to go to these kind of places. The doors are much more expensive. There are no more club kids. The city is getting a lot more strict in cracking down on illegal activities, even closing places down for letting in minors.
0: They really started taking closer look at the IDs as well. You know, during the 90s, you could buy a fake ID at Times Square uh, or use your cousin's old driver's license. <laughs> yeah. And they were very lax about that kind of thing. But uh, uh, that had changed. Uh
2: huh. And to be quite honest, it was just so much more expensive now to operate a place that was this large, you could get away with that in the 1990s but the owners of Avalon could not do so, and it was closed in two thousand and seven and so I come to the latest iteration of the Church of the Holy communion that of a retail shopping experience almost going back to and ladies, ladies Mile, Mile, yeah you know where everything around it was a retail shopping experience but now finally you were you could go into the building itself and so, mm, yes make so, purchases so the
0: sinners have gone and the, the shopping has entered
2: yes the shopping has entered now this was not just any mall when it did reopen it opened specifically as a place for quote, entrepreneurs who may not be able to get financing to open a full retail store. It was filled with like little high-end boutiques uh, that sold very expensive labels and brands. This didn't quite work as a concept because, of course, you couldn't put a lot of signage out on the street. This was, again, a landmarked building of dark brown Stone. Brownstone, (laughs) yes. Yeah. So it went through a a slight change in two thousand eleven where today it's more of a department store. It's a little bit more streamlined inside, but it's still a place where you can go and buy trendy garments and shoes.
0: Right. So you and today you can walk in through the church's main front doors. Right there. They're open. You walk right in to what was the, uh, the sanctuary and then became the dance floor. So in February
2: 2011, very curiously, into the sister's house moved Grimaldi's Pizza. So you can now get a delicious slice of Brooklyn pizza here. But they don't sell it by the slice, Greg. Don't Not forget. the slice, And no. cash only. And cash only. Anne Ayers would be proud of that. Sister Anne. <laughs> <And> cash only. <laughs> the ghost of, of Anne will uh, hover over your shoulder as you enjoy a slice of Grimaldi's. So we'll see what this later... Iteration brings, if it can remain successful in these sort of trying economic times, or if there is another transformation in the future for Muhlenberg and Upjohn's masterpiece here. Time will tell.
0: In the meantime, it's at least worth waltzing in and checking out the old stained glass windows, which are sort of behind some mannequins and Tommy Hilfiger shirts. <laughs> you may have to buy a handbag or something while you're there, but um,
2: it's, a, it's a very beautiful place to check out. So that is our story of the Church of the Holy Communion slash limelight. Check out the blog, Barryboyspodcast.com for other information on this show and for all, lots of different posts on New York City history, of course. Uh, you can also check us out on Facebook and join our community of listeners there. So, thanks for joining us on our walk through the limelight for this admittedly strange and disjointed show of uh, and debauched ha- and uh, yeah, and devout, <laughs> devout and debauched. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.